you're listening to Not Great, the podcast where we canonize the shit and shit on the canon. We're here to reclaim trash and give it its rightful place in history. I'm Bethy Squires, and I am here with Doyle. Kate Doyle. Kate Doyle. We work together, and, and when we work together on Adam Ruins Everything, we just called her Doyle, so I wasn't sure... Yeah, we should have talked about it. Now, to be honest, there is a lot of run-up to this, but frequently I am called just Doyle. But I like Kate too. You like Kate as well? Yeah. Wait, so how did you get doyled at work? Well, honestly, I doyled myself, and <laughs> I've done it in most professional contexts for a while um, since college. Because even in a group of, I find ten to fifteen people, co-ed, there always tends to be another Kate, Catherine, Kathleen something in that area. So that is I just, true. I default back to my last name because it's often um, the name of like a male uh, helicopter pilot in an action movie mm. uh, or a doctor, usually like a peripheral, like useful character. The one guy who was half demon on Angel and got visions. Yes. There's another Doyle that the really short guy plays Gilmore Girls. Oh. Um, Perfect. Useful peripheral man, always. So I'm here with useful peripheral man, Kate Doyle, uh, who writes for Vulture, also with me, and uh, is a researcher right now on I Love America, I Love You America, Mm -hmm. with Sarah Silverman. And we are here to talk about Herbert Hoover and how Annie has slandered him. Uh, Who's Annie? (laughs) The musical Annie. Oh my God. They have that song about Hoovervilles and how they'd like to thank him, and they don't mean it. They don't actually want to thank him. I'm glad you're here to add that aspect to the conversation because I don't have any Annie, Annie background for you. All I have is actual Herbert Hoover background. I have a lot of anecdotes. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. I okay. feel bad about that. Well, Tell- <laughs> yeah. We're talking about trash. Uh, that's one way to start. Oh my gosh. Um, I don't actually know if anyone's ever called Her- Hoover trash but he definitely is maligned historically as a president. And um, my argument would be he shouldn't be. Uh, He was actually a good guy, possibly a great guy, just not a good president. Mm. Um, Yeah, so I don't know what... I was actually just talking to to my husband Colin about Herbert Hoover recently because he was Quaker. And I was raised Quaker, and so was Nixon. So it's her, it's uh, Hoover and Nixon are the two Quaker presidents. Mm-hmm. And it got me like when I assumed that he was a terrible president, that uh, the Quakerism is like so anti-hierarchical and so like fearful of power in a lot of ways and very mistrusting of power that anybody who is like raised in that milieu and then still wants to be like king shit of fuck mountain is probably like the er sociopath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that there's something deeply wrong with somebody who's like, if you're, like, conditioned to seek power and want to be, like, an authority, then it would make sense. But if you were conditioned to, to be in an environment where the baseline assumption is that everyone is as holy and correct and true as everyone else, and your opinion in the eyes of the Lord matters equally as much as anyone else's, then if you think that you should be the boss after years of that, you have to be completely insane. That makes a ton of sense to me. I also made a note that uh, Hoover was Quaker. My grandmother was at least briefly Quaker. Um, I think 
usually that's a positive. Uh, and I think that plays into the argument here that he was actually a good guy. He didn't want to be president, so okay. we'll go with that. The reason he was functionally bad at that job is because he was so anti-big government, really didn't think he, as president, should have any power or that the government should intervene in the Great Depression at all, the recession mm. that became the Depression. And he is, like, I think probably people look back on him as a villain because he was president during the Great Depression, which started seven months after he took office. Um, but he didn't cause it. Yeah, if something starts seven months into your administration, the foundations were, like, laid, unless you're making completely insane decrees. For sure. He, was, he got the shit end of the stick in that regard um and he went from one of the most popular people in the country in 1920 uh when the democrats and republicans both wanted to nominate him for president that's how well liked he was he was a crazy um prolific uh humanitarian he was a self-made millionaire who um saved millions of lives during world war one at least how did how did he do that he was in charge of um uh, food aid and he sent he like rationed what was available in the states so that he could send free meals to both uh, allied soldiers in Europe and he continued to send those resources even to war ravaged countries after our hmm. troops had been brought home and he was just like out of the goodness of his heart like he was a orphan who went to Stanford became a geologist self-made millionaire in as good a way as you can be. That's generally a negative. Well, I have a question of how you become a millionaire from being a geologist. Did he, like, find oil? He was in uh, mining. Okay. uh, And he traveled overseas. It doesn't sound great, and for sure you could be an evil person and have that job, but I think he was just really into rocks. (laughs) Um, He met his future wife in college. They were both studying geology, and they were in the same class. Her name was Lou. That's really cute. I mean, come on now. That's really cute. And, and their geological travels. He was a good guy, doing good stuff. Everyone loved him. He won uh, the election in 1928 um, by the biggest electoral margin to date hmm. election. Like, it was a landslide. And then in uh, 32, he lost to FDR by the next biggest landslide. Like, <laughs> both won the biggest and lost the biggest because because of the depression and he was so pinned to it and uh, vilified. So he didn't want the government to intervene mm-hmm. just because he believed in the free market? Yeah, or? he didn't want to restrain uh, capitalism. And he was, you know, as a self-made millionaire, he believed in the free market. The things he tried to do just didn't really work. Um, and the other thing, uh, I, was, I was digging around trying to figure out okay, who should we blame for this if not Hoover? That was my next question. I would love to be able to point to an individual. I can't, but I can say congressional Republicans who uh, pressured him into signing the Smoot-Hawley tariff in Mm. 1930 when we were in a huge economic slide but hadn't yet entered the Great Depression. Like That's often pointed to as like this super exacerbated what were some bad conditions to start with, the Smoot-Hawley tariff. Now and he said he straight up said, "Bad idea. <laughs> we shouldn't be doing this." But the fact that there was uh, a lot of congressional pressure from special interests for him to sign it, he signed it anyway. Mm. Okay, so 
the Smoot Holly tariff uh-huh. was presumably a tariff that was conceived by one guy named Smoot and one guy named Holly. Exactly. Can I blame Smoot because he has the funniest name? I would blame both of them, and uh, let's weight it towards Smoot just for name reasons only. Yeah. Great. Mm-hmm. From Hell's Heart, I stab at him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, f- I feel like, especially the way that we're taught about the Great Depression in school, it's like it was like a weather event that had no sort of foreseeable antecedents. Nothing could have mm-hmm. uh, stopped it. Nothing could have been seen. It was just like all of a sudden, everyone took their money out of the stock market and then were jumping out of buildings. Yeah, that was pretty much it. Yeah, that's just <laughs> how I learned it. <laughs> uh, yeah, and there's a, I think what he should have done would be to mobilize the Federal Reserve to artificially sustain the economy, um, which could have maybe made the depression less bad is what it could have done. Mm. But in terms of like, was there one big bad guy in the 20s who we can point to and say, this is the reason the depression happened? You know, in my very minimal research, my answer would be no. (laughs) Uh, I think it was just post-war prosperity turned into a productivity boom and wages didn't quite keep pace with that, although they did go up, um, and there were no protections in, in place, you know, in case people suddenly lost faith in the market, uh, if uh, the stock market were to, say, have um, the best day of its history, and then the worst day a week later, <laughs> everyone is just like, we're not going to use banks anymore. There was nothing in place to keep that from destroying the world, <laughs> but it did. Wow. I thought that I knew anything about what happened in the Great Depression and then in our most recent recession, and I feel like maybe I don't. I know that Adam McKay made a movie about it, Mm -hmm. and I could learn if I wanted to watch that. Mm -hmm. But I just remember in, like, 2006, like, having a really long conversation with my then-boyfriend about what skills we should bring to the post-apocalyptic wasteland because we just like saw saw it coming and we're just like well i know how to make a water filtration thing out of sand because i read it in a zine Mm -hmm. and i'm good at sewing and i can bring that to our clan (laughs) and neither of us knew how to grow vegetables and we saw that as a big stumbling block in our ability to survive once uh money had collapsed and uh I've gotten better at gardening since then. Okay. Yeah, there's a, you know, I would recommend um, hunting and gathering as well if you're not going to go full agriculture. True. Uh, I just watched Into the Wild, and I now feel like I can probably do it. I was like, you know what? I mean, better than him. For sure, yeah. Because you know not to eat that one that doesn't give you any nutrients. The seed with the lateral veins. I'm not going to eat that Don't eat that seed. Come on. Come on. Do you believe that theory... I remember um, my, like, sophomore year sociology class was very adamant about hunting-gathering actually being the best society and that the agrarian revolution, like, doomed all of humanity to a life of uh, toil, iniquity, and war. I think it's interesting. I wouldn't, I don't know if I would uh, march in, you know, a protest and hold a sign about, like, anti-agricultural revolution. I do think (laughs) it's cool to think about it in ter- like equating it with the industrial revolution in terms of um, as a watershed moment that we look back on as 
entirely positive and maybe it wasn't mm -hmm. in the way that, you know, maybe all progress is bad. <laughs> Have we tried regressing? Um, I would argue we're trying we it right trying now. It now. <laughs> so maybe, maybe this is going to work out for us. Who knows? We just need to keep, keep dialing it backwards. Yeah. Farther, farther, we, farther. How far can we roll this back? I'd like to see a rollback to Minoan Crete so that we're all just oh, jumping over bowls with our tits out. The mosaic, uh, height of mosaic culture, I think. Someday we're going to get to that pinnacle of mosaic arts again. <laughs> I thought we were really close when people kept making um, collages of, like, other people's faces, you know. Uh, for a long time I felt like every puzzle was that. Do you remember... Um, like there'd be like, it's like a picture of Einstein. It looks weirdly pointless. And it turns out it's like more pictures of Einstein making it up. Oh yeah. That was huge. That was a huge moment. That was huge. Mm -hmm. That was like a real big, like web 1.0 moment. Definitely <laughs> our Minoan Crete of the modern age <laughs> was pictures of Einstein made of smaller pictures of Einstein. <laughs> <laughs> Which would make 4chan the Macedonians that eventually conquered our peaceful mosaic loving people. I think people. that tracks actually. <laughs> Uh, I have a few more uh, yeah. facts. Doyle brought notes, which I, is a first for the podcast. Yeah. Let's look at this. Uh, upwards of three pages of notes. I'm in awe. I'm so into it. Um, but I have uh, interesting... Okay, so I say Herbert Hoover. What do you think? Hoovervilles? Mm-hmm. Okay. Great Depression. Covered mm -hmm. it. Hoover Dam? I would assume so. Yeah. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't, um, I, when I think Hoover Dam, I don't think Herbert Hoover. It does not really? go the other way around. Well, there was a, maybe that's because there was a concerted movement to divorce him from mm. the dam, even though he was largely the architect of it, not the actual architect, but the architect in quotes. And he, uh, his name was on uh, five appropriations bills while he was president that were putting money toward that project. It was... Um, built and completed during his presidency. He'd advocated for it in the 20s before he took office um, because he was so, just he became a firebrand of negativity and he was, the whole country was uh, focusing their criticism at this one man and blaming him. He was, he was a scapegoat for anything wrong in anyone's life. <laughs> in the um, he really didn't have a good time of it, Herbert. Is that kind of the job of the president? I think so. Yeah, it's just I do to think be it's part of what you're signing up for. This the the cultural whipping boy. Mm -hmm. I mean, you get credit for the good things and blame for the bad things, and he came up in a real bad time. <laughs> He's president. Hoover Dam is built. Great Depression happens. We fucking hate Hoover. Uh, he leaves office. FDR beats him in freaking crushing defeat. Really demoralizing. Um, can we say he teed up FDR to be the saint that he is yeah. now, I think. There's one thing. Um, FDR, Secretary of the Interior, hated Hoover so much that he gave speeches where he called the Hoover Dam, which we had already agreed was going to be called the Hoover Dam because Ho it was Hoover's idea, mm -hmm. and he masterminded the whole thing, gave speeches where he called it the Boulder Dam five times in a 30-second period as just like a rhetorical device to flood the conversation with this other name. Yeah. Hoover was not invited to the dedication of the dam, which was run by FDR in, I think, 33. Um, speeches were given. He was not mentioned, wasn't present for it. 
um, wasn't until Truman was president and he signed an executive order, I believe, that like uh, retroactively said, all right, we're going to connect Hoover to this to his own dam again. So it's interesting that you say you don't necessarily yeah. connect those two things. Was it called the Boulder Dam in that? In the interim, yeah. Yeah? Mm -hmm. I mean, well, I think it was equally people would call it the Hoover Dam or the Boulder Dam in like conversation because mm -hmm. it had been used, it had been called the Hoover Dam while they were building it. I do feel like Boulder Dam is a terrible name for it since it's, like there is already a famous Boulder and it's in a different state. Yeah. There is a Boulder City that's right next to the Hoover Dam, Boulder City, Nevada, but calm down. It's not even in Boulder City though. It's a, no. it's a, a geographical misnomer even to call it that. It's like <laughs> this one guy, what was his name? Inch or something? Secretary Inch? Something. He's a real villain. That sounds right. He hated Hoover to an insane degree. He was like the Penguin versus Batman levels of animosity. <laughs> um, Wait, why is the Penguin the one that you go to for the guy who hates Batman the most? For some, do you not agree? Who do you think hates Batman the most? Oh gosh, now I need to think about this. Because like, the Joker has like a almost like a love hate thing, so it's definitely not him. Yeah, they have a bromance for sure. Yeah, and then Catwoman is marrying him in the comics later this year, so not her. The Riddler likes to challenge Batman and is into how smart he is. It might be the Penguin. I think, it's the I penguin. think you're right. I feel like everyone else has at least peripheral things that they're focused on or they have ire towards, um, but the Penguin. He's got so little else going on in his life. I think he's pretty much just anti-Batman all the way. Now, I know we are talking about Hoover, but the Penguin, is he... He's new money, right? So does he hate... Well, no, because he wouldn't know that Bruce Wayne is Batman. So he doesn't... Yeah. It's not a, like, nouveau riche versus old money beef. Is it a socioeconomic rift? I don't know. I mean, that's In a way, uh, it kind of all is. <laughs> all rifts are socioeconomic rifts. You definitely know way more about Batman than I do. It was, my instinct was to say, Secretary of the Interior Inch was the Penguin of 1930. They just look like that. I'll stand by it. I mean, it sounds big like Big old nose. Is. That's probably why, actually, if his name was Inch and the Penguin was so short. Yeah. Maybe that's why I did And that. just the name Inch already sounds like he's some sort of villain. Like, that's the, the his, like, daytime name. I don't know what to call it. <laughs> his alter ego and then at night he's like the micronaut or something and his whole thing is like shrinking people i don't know yeah the underminer I'll, I'll have it on your desk soon i promise okay, yeah. i'm getting to it i like this idea of a given name and like a taken name <laughs> like the one you take i'll come back to it uh, <laughs> so all right the dam we got we got that he was quicker he was a middle child i was a middle child hmm we're talking about Hoover again and not the Penguin or any other comic book. Um, it's only a matter of time, though. We'll get back to it. I expect that we, <laughs> I hope we do. Uh, wife's name was Lou. Great. Uh, when I Googled Herbert Hoover quotes two hours ago, three of the top ten had to do with fishing. I really think that speaks volumes in favor, <laughs> in favor of this man. He was so into fishing. Um, I can tell you the quotes if you want to hear them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, there are only two occasions when Americans respect privacy, especially in presidents. Those are prayer and fishing. That's one of them. Uh, fishing is much more than fish. It's the great occasion when we may return to the fine simplicity of our forefathers. And was Camp David in existence when Hoover was president? Or 
I want to say no. I want to say no too. But it's this is like the penguin one. I don't know why. I just feel that this is true. <laughs> uh, the third one is all men are equal before fish. <laughs> all men are equal before fish sounds like something a fluxist wrote on a wall uh-huh. in like New York City in the sixties. Yeah, it's probably still there in a bathroom somewhere. Like, but and attributing it to Herbert Hoover, it's like gibberish. It is. It doesn't. I kind of want to get it as a lower back tattoo. Honestly, I love it. No sense. I. It's very good. Uh, if you want, if anyone's interested, you could pick up Herbert Hoover's eighty-six page pamphlet, which he wrote after he was president, called "Fishing for Fun and to Wash Your Soul." Wash your soul. Wash your soul. I mean, it's got a lot of Quaker stuff going on there. Do you know if Herbert Hoover was a fly fisher or the other kind? I'm picturing a River Runs Through It style fly fishing. He was from Iowa, and that's where he learned to fish as a a wee babe who was in his local river. Um, And then spent the latter part of his youth in Oregon. Mm. So I'm picturing fly fishing, yeah. Great. And I think that's the only way you can wash your soul while you fish is if you're, like, in the river. He's got to be standing in it. He's got galoshes up the wazoo, yeah. I assume. Um, fun fact, though, Quakers do not get baptized. Hmm. So the being, like, washed in the, in the river would not have the same sort of, like, Christian overtones for a Quaker. Interesting. So does it strike you as weird that that would be the title of his pamphlet? Like, a little. Okay. Maybe he elaborates inside... I haven't read it. I'm more confused why he's so obsessed with fish or fishing. I guess maybe he's not obsessed with fish, but then he was also, but he was a geologist. I feel like, because collecting rocks is also a hobby, but he doesn't have any quotes about rocks. And that seems crazy to me. Yeah. You you can get a lot of inspirational quotes out of rocks and he chose not to. Mm. He went the fish direction. Is it like rocks are work, fish are for play? He just has this total distinction. Oh, yeah. Maybe he was really over rocks by, you know, midlife. He lived to be 90. So he was was alive to get the dam named after him. Yeah. That's that's nice. Another thing that I really connect with Herbert Hoover over, and the reason I became interested in him is because I did a report on him in eighth grade. (laughs) could pick a president and read a biography and then give a presentation, and I picked Herbert Hoover... Uh, because it was the most rebellious one you could pick. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to make him cool again. And guess what? He already is. Uh, but he was alive and still uh, active in philanthropy for decades after he was president, after he had just become hated uh, the villain yeah. that everyone hated and associated with our uh, lowest point as a country. Um and he de facto became a critic of FDR and of the New Deal and of the policies that would bring us out of the Depression. And I so identify with someone who makes a bad call and then has to continue defending what they know is a bad call for decades <laughs> and just becomes the spokesperson for this increasingly poor decision. <laughs> uh, I really connect. I, I have a lot of empathy for him for that reason. So I I learned recently that, um, you know, the primary method of, like, securing cadavers for medical schools Mm -hmm. is just poor people, people that die in poverty. And the New Deal was so successful that they were low on cadavers. 
they just ran, like people were living instead of just dying in abject poverty. Oh, wow. So that med schools like were running short. So, so what did they start actively killing uh, poorer people who weren't dying? <laughs> <laughs> now who's the Batman villain? It's you. If Herbert Hoover was a Batman character, he might be Two-Face, Harvey Dent. The uh, yeah, I agree. Upstanding civil servant until, but except for he chose after you know Harvey Dent turned evil once the public hated him. Mm-hmm. Herbert Hoover did not. Yeah, Hoover was the hero we need, not the hero we deserve. I don't know. someday, someday I'm gonna have somebody on the podcast who doesn't like the Nolan Batman movies in the same way that I don't, and I it's also gonna be don't beautiful. Like I just did a half hour on Hoover, or I would go into. They're too dark. They're too dark. <laughs> Physically, I can't see what's going on. It's too dark in those movies. That's very true. But we already picked one thing for you to get mad about, yeah. and we're going to transition to that right now very artfully. Okay. What do you think is overrated? Um, also, I want to say, before we move on, if we're going to hate anybody, Smoot Hawley. Also, don't sleep on Andrew Johnson if you want to hate a president. Sure, yeah. Don't very, very racist. Let's very drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the two things. And, oh, put like his friends in weird, like appointed his friends in weird offices, very yeah. crony-y. Actively destroyed Reconstruction. Yeah. Uh, and also, so and also Andrew Jackson. If there is an Andrew president, it hasn't gone great. Yeah, I paused because I was like, uh, you can throw Jackson in there too. They were both bad. I right. super despise Jackson because of setting up the, like, well, you know, genocide for one. Yeah. But then the the ignoring of the Supreme Court decision set up a lot of room, wiggle room and precedent for um, presidents acting unilaterally. And I feel like Andrew Jackson is at least partially responsible for the Iraq war. So that is a strong. T- I agree. I think all the president, the Andrew presidents we've had have been two headstrong idiots. Uh, and then, drunk. Yeah. Drunk, racist. And Hoover was not headstrong enough. And maybe that was part of his downfall. Um, anyway, what do I think is people think is good, but I think is bad mm-hmm. is the pre-fee dinner. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. I think you're saying it correctly. I feel like I say prefix, even though, that. like, we're in America, it's fine. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that's something that I still don't see very often. Like if I'm back in Indiana. There will occasionally be like a pre-feed dinner, but not a lot. So what? Oh yeah, I've never I've never seen one in uh, upstate New York, the rural area that is my homeland. I don't think I've ever seen one. I've seen. You'll also sometimes see like a set menu, mm-hmm. or I think the original French term was table de haute, and I I'm probably mispronouncing that as well. And then in sushi, it'd be omakase. Yeah, and you do see that a lot in New York and LA. Yeah. So what do you not like about it? Well, uh, I have only a half page of notes on this, so it's going to be more brief. But Oh, no. Um, so the pre-fee is usually a special occasion menu that a restaurant will have. Um, it just means fixed price, and you're going to get probably uh, an app or an entree, um, a main course, Maybe a salad, maybe a cheese course, maybe a dessert. It's multi-course. You're investing a lot of money and a lot of hours mm-hmm. into a thing that's all already been chosen for you. It's like chef-designed, basically. Um, 
my main problem is that we are treating this like it is good and better than regular food. And I, first off, have a, a really strong reaction against anyone ordering for me mm. or choosing what I am going to eat. I find it, whatever the, the female version of emasculating is, it feels emasculating. And there was, there has been a time in my life when older man, at, in a non-preview situation, in a regular menu situation, ordered for me without asking. He decided what I was going to have. And I've never, uh, I've never felt such a burning rage in my life. <laughs> okay, insane. I, I think we need to circle back sure. and like, right, what, what, uh, under what circumstances? This was I was on a European vacation with my boyfriend at the time. Uh, it was his dad. I was with his family. Okay. And we were at this restaurant that obviously none of us have been to before. We're in a different country, and his dad just had this um, old school. A man of the house feeling that he always knew best about everything mm-hmm. um, and I had already chosen what I wanted to order off the menu and uh, the waiter was taking our orders and going around the table and everyone was saying you know what they want and they got to me and I said I don't remember what the dish was I was so blinded by rage that I don't remember the details of the night but um, I said what I wanted and then my boyfriend's dad said um, oh no no that's not what she wants she wants changed my order on the fly to the waiter who was standing right there and I was devastated I, I'm also now mad at the waiter mm-hmm. for listening everyone was in, in the wrong yeah. except me because I'm a saint Jesus but it's honestly since then I didn't know until that happened how strongly I would react against someone else ordering food for me I have so many feelings about all of it I can understand that. I choice, etc. I think I I also will get like very I will be emotionally devastated if like a restaurant is busy when I want to eat there mm-hmm. or if they don't have the thing that I want that day. Like I have if I get a like a hankerin, it becomes like I get very emotionally invested in said hankerin. Mm-hmm. And if perhaps I was hankering for something and then somebody else changed my order like murder might happen. I know, and it's just as a show of strength. And it's just like, who wins here? Nobody wins. Nobody wins there. Uh, So there's that. That's irrational, and it's not even really uh, in application to a pre-feed dinner, which is something I would theoretically have chosen to order. It's just that the dishes have been chosen for me. So I don't like that aspect of it. And then there's also um, a lot of legitimate reasons it's actually not good. Uh, It's similar to the way brunch works, I think, where you end up paying a surcharge for something that we treat like it's better than other food, that is actually made up of whatever the restaurant has left over Mm -hmm. on hand, because it's a menu they're making up day of. And this is not to say I have a problem with, uh, like, daily specials at a restaurant. Often are great because they're based on what's fresh, what's available, when they're buying raw materials, but a pre-fee is often... Uh, like scraps left over from various animals and it's not maybe it tastes great but it's a calculated move on the restaurant's part to uh, get you to pay a lot of money for something they're trying to get rid of anyway yeah I'll also see a pre-fee for a holiday that maybe has a lot of dining out like Mm -hmm. on Valentine's Day there'll be a Mm pre-fee and it's more to make the kitchen as like streamlined and um, 
uh, assembly line-y as possible. By removing choice for the diner, they can just bang out as many as they need as quickly as possible without anyone having to think. That makes sense. Yeah, and I did, I think you see this a lot on like a New Year's Eve or a Valentine's Day or when I was reading about this, I learned about such a thing that's called Sweetest Day. Have you heard about this? This Mm -mm. is apparently a Midwestern thing that's like another Valentine's Day in late October. I feel like I know the... uh, Simpsons made fun of it and called it like Love Day mm-hmm. once in the episode about trash. Mm-hmm. But well, this angered me too just to learn that there's another Valentine's Day just floating around out there. I that does seem that. entirely unnecessary. Um, and I think I, that it makes sense that it would streamline the back of the house on a, what you know is going to be a busy day, a special occasion. Um, but it also there's something about the idea of like in, on a Valentine's Day, which is all holidays are manufactured, really, but that <laughs> especially manufactured. Um, there's a pressure to feel special on this day, so we can't go to a regular restaurant and have a regular meal we would usually order. A prefee is a step above. It's more expensive. It's special. It's a special occasion. Um, but w- it's kind of like a collective delusion that we're just buying into. Yeah, I think something that bugs me about it is... The, is I don't want to say that all chefs who do prefee are perverts, but I think that there's something about, like, chef is daddy. Chef's going to take care of you. Uh-huh. That feels so gross and, like, DDLG to me. That it has, like, a, a grooming aspect to it that I don't <laughs> like. I guess, yeah, that's totally true, too. I was reading interviews with, there are, uh, it's like a growing number of respected chefs who don't do prefees anymore, particularly on holidays. Mm. Because... They and I agree with this argument that what are we saying if we're saying this is a, a special menu with dishes we don't usually serve for a special occasion? It's better than what our day to day food is. Yeah, it's kind of negging the restaurant when it, it's normal. Are we? Yeah, like could you be maybe put out your best possible dish? You know, on most days that would be nice. <laughs> but it's I think there's a growing movement away from it, and I which I support. Yeah, I would say that's true. Although I think that still, like, omakase is not going anywhere. Yeah, that a little one bit. is the one that I don't mind. And maybe it's because it's more common to see it, like, year-round at a sushi restaurant. Yeah, and I think that people like to have some of the guesswork taken out of sushi sometimes. Yeah. Even though sushi has been popular in, like, in grocery stores for, like, and in, like, gas stations for decades at this point. I don't know why we're still kind of, like, baffled buy it as a cuisine i will say i i'm fine with having the chef daddy me over sushi and just give me what is best Mm -hmm. order for me um don't order for me i'll punch you in the face but (laughs) pick my sushi for me because i don't i don't know enough about it i haven't watched zero dreams of sushi that's pretty good i mean uh i know i should i just haven't i didn't have sushi until i was probably 20 Hmm. there was no sushi in my uh landlocked upstate new york hometown (laughs) um we had one chinese restaurant that was the closest we got to sushi uh and then uh, i really never had like an education with it so i'm okay with someone else guiding me now i'm like i'm a little surprised that one of your beefs of prefi isn't just that like the vegetarian option if it exists is much worse that's actually very true and i think 
that didn't occur to me because I haven't even attempted to go to a, a pre-fee or to order one since becoming vegetarian, mm-hmm. which was at this point two to three years ago. Because there is no point. It's unless you're going explicitly to a vegetarian restaurant, I'm not going to be able to eat anything but the salad and the cheese. <laughs> um, so that's, I don't know how much, you know, how mad should I be that chefs aren't um, specifically crafting tasting menus for vegetarians? How many vegetarians are there relative to the population that they be doing that? I mean, I in know. Los Angeles, you know, there's I'm enough sure. people that it's like, that are at least plant based in their lifestyle. Oh, we should talk about that. Yeah. Uh, I'm triggered by the (laughs) fact. Doyle and I share a love of uh, internet minutiae and subcultures. And uh, I think it's a collaborative effort. We've been like, I've been trying to come up with like a list of all of the different like ways that different internet subcultures will like have their own version of like cuck, Mm -hmm. essentially. So plant-based is for like hard, like hardline internet vegans. Yeah, we this found. is my, my favorite version of cuck currently is if a vegan calls you plant-based, they're saying you're a cuck. I love it. Uh, See, I was used to people saying blood mouth. That was the one that I would hear. That but that's like if you eat, if you're just like a full-on carnivore, you're blood mouth. And so maybe if you're Absolutely. like, plant-based is kind of also like has a tinge of like poser to it. Yeah, what's interesting, I think the idea there is that hardcore, hardcore veganism is both spiritual and like just a physical act (laughs) and if you're just physically vegan but you don't buy into the spirituality aspect then you're just plant-based or like if you have leather shoes or use pig collagen hair masks which are very good so the collagen comes from a pig yeah it's got to come from something i guess that's true yeah can we get that from algae no maybe um, no, I think that would be an agar hair mask. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, I've never done a hair mask, and if you could see my hair, you would know uh, that that's the case. Dear reader, it is lustrous. Do not be fooled. <laughs> You're reading this podcast now. Uh, I've decided. Um, what was it? Oh, I recently saw a T-shirt that says niche drama, and I almost bought it. <laughs> but I came across the, the plant-based version of Cuck in a... Uh, tweet thread a few months ago and that that was triggered by a vegan woman buying an ice cream for a child in an anecdote that she told herself um, and I'm convinced that neither the child nor the ice cream really exist but it turned into a, a really passionate argument about if you purchase dairy for someone else then you are only plant-based and you are no longer vegan because you have betrayed the cause hmm. I might agree. <laughs> well, I don't I guess know. If, you, if your if your worldview is that no one should consume any animal product in any form, even if you yourself never consume it, but if you buy it for someone else, I guess then you're still right. like feeding into the machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the ice cream machine. For sure. I mean, this is moot. I'm positive that none of the people in this anecdote existed, <laughs> uh, but it was informative for me, so I'm glad. So you became vegetarian two or three years ago? Yeah, I was. I'm now pescatarian. Mm-hmm. So I like to make that distinction, even though people don't care. No one cares. <laughs> um, Except for the internet, and we don't care what they think. It was, yeah, I, there wasn't really a bright line of, like, I went from meat to no meat. It's just something that I 
um, dabbled in and tried. It was like it was popular a couple of years ago to do meatless Mondays mm-hmm. or like reduced meat consumption without totally removing it from your diet. And I, uh, like in college for a while, I challenged myself to eat only soup and pretzels just to see if I could. Okay. I could. Hmm. Probably wasn't a great idea for me, you know, physically or mentally. But, you know, there's something about like arbitrary restriction that I was into. So then this, this arbitrary kind of like meatless Monday or consume less meat. I tried it out, and then I was like, hey, this is not that hard. I kept doing it. Are you familiar with the artist Andrea Zatel? I am not. She, I feel like arbitrary restrictions are kind of her thing. It's like her, her entire body of work is based on that. Like, her house only has bowls. There are no plates and no cups. Oh, my God. Can I tell you? I eat only out of bowls. <laughs> but she also only drinks out of bowls as well. Interesting. Hmm. Like, slightly smaller bowls giving me ideas now about new things to do with bowls. I just really like bowls, though. It's not even a restriction. I just, like, find it more comforting to eat out of them. Yeah, I agree. I think I think there's nothing more cruel than forcing someone to eat a salad on a plate. Like, there's just, you can't spear the lettuce. It's really hard. We need to do better with how we're getting salads into our mouths. We're not doing a great job of it. There no. has to be a better way. I, I don't, because even in a bowl, it's still not going to be great i eat salads out of bowls but like maybe we need better forks something's got to change better forks um have you ever been in a japanese restaurant that doesn't have forks and they give you like a salad and you have to eat it with chopsticks yeah it goes okay i i'm just trying i'm like brainstorming here i've done that even when forks are available in a similar kind of arbitrary restriction way (laughs) i'm gonna challenge myself to eat the salad or this grain of rice with chopsticks now, rice, I think, is easier to eat with chopsticks than almost anything else. If it's sticky. Well, and I do, like, the shovel. So, like, the bowl yeah. is, like, under my chin, and I'm just, like, well, shoveling it into me like I am a train and it's coal. <laughs> um, I have a similar thing where I have didn't grow up with sushi, don't understand it. Didn't grow up with chopsticks, don't understand them either. The way I'm using them is absolutely not a sanctioned way to use chopsticks. <laughs> so it's a, it's a real struggle. Dear reader, it's a struggle. <laughs> but yeah, so like she has all bowls, Andrea Zatel does, and uh, for a while she was only, she didn't like having multiple outfits. She thought that it was like more work to have to choose an outfit than just putting like a uniform on. Yeah. So she started off with like this like panel of cloth with like straps on it and you could like wrap it in different ways to make different outfits out of it and then that almost that got to um to choice laden so she started she was like well what's i didn't want to cut like when she was making her own fabric own dresses she used panels because she wanted to use the whole cloth and like take it back to the essence of fabric. And then she was like, what's even more essential than that is the strand. And so she started crocheting all of her dresses and she would wear each dress for like a full season Hmm. and then like exhibit them. And I assume they were rank, but I have no, I have not been in the room with one of those dresses before. Yeah. Could you, hmm, I might just go jumpsuit if I were going to pick one like er outfit. Really? I don't know. Jumpsuit or dress, but which, you know, she did dress. She did dress. Jumpsuit is just so hard to pee in. I mean, you have to have a pee flap 
I'm assuming there's a P flap. This is, goes without saying. Wait, where's the P flap? Not even a flap. Maybe just, I hesitate to call this, but a slit? I guess, yeah, I guess. A slit with like. I just be so worried you, about splashback. The way you have a, um, a zipper on your jeans with a flap that goes over that zipper. I that's mean, what I'm even if, like, I don't understand why jumpsuits aren't don't have a zipper so that they can become separate pants and jackets if we want them to. Or we can mix and match them so that the top half can be like red and the bottom half can be blue. That's a little Mario. But if no one's doing that, you should start doing that. Somebody has to. That's a good idea. Make them into quadrants and then they can be fully customizable. Yeah, I mean, this is going against the whole spirit of reducing choice. We're just making a, a mosaic jumpsuit basically i have a tendency to take pure ideas and turn them into crass commerce mm-hmm. so i think this is part of my artistic mm-hmm. statement well you'll do well in america <laughs> <laughs> doyle where can people find you online uh i am on twitter at doyle Schmoyle, um and that's probably it <laughs> Okay. I don't know where. I mean, if you want to read stuff I've written a long time ago, you could look on Reductress or McSweeney's or The New Yorker's Daily Shouts. See, Doyle said she just wanted to be introduced as a writer and researcher, as a comedian who is a researcher, but didn't want me to list all the credits. But the credits are long and fierce. Well, I listed them, so. Own your bylines. Got them in. I'm proud of you. Thank you. Um, and you can find me at Bethy BSQU on Twitter and at Bethy Squires on Instagram. And I still haven't made any social media presence for this show. And I never will because. Okay. Good night. Good night.